Welcome to all of you here and welcome to all of you who are watching and participating online and on demand. So today we're looking at how, how being convinced of the truth of Christ but missing the beauty of Christ can actually make your faith less resilient. You can be convinced of the truth, but if you miss the beauty, you'll be less resilient. We're going to be looking at the greatest miracle in the Bible, possibly a miracle that's even greater than the resurrection. And then we're going to be looking or we're going to explore a little bit how it is that paintings of Jesus with beautiful hair and a halo actually undermines the message of Christmas. So we're in the third week of our series on the Gospel of John chapter 1. It's a series called Beyond the Manger because we need to think beyond Christmas while not missing Christmas. So before we do that, we're going to watch a video with scripture reading, and then we're going to watch um, another video where I'm going to talk about something that's coming next week that's really important for the life of our church, how to prepare for it, uh, and then catch us up to where we are, and then I'll come back and uh, we'll get back to the sermon. So let's uh, watch the video now. Hey, church. I'm going to read to you John 1, 1 through 5, and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And in verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Next week is our Blessed Campaign's official celebration where we announce the numerical results of the campaign. But the celebration already started. It started a couple of weeks ago when we announced the advanced commitments of over $900,000. That means we need less than $800,000 to reach our goal of $1.7 million. Now I'm praying that we reach that goal because it's really important. The things that that goal represents are really important. But the numerical or financial goal isn't the whole picture. I've had so many conversations over the years with people who look back at campaigns like this one as a major time of spiritual growth in their lives. For some, it was the beginning of really understanding stewardship, that God owns everything. And then not just giving as a last priority, but as a first priority in life. For others, it was a time of growing in their faith because they made a commitment and they stuck to that commitment and it was stretching, it stretched their faith. And for some, it was a time of sacrifice and learning the value of personal sacrifice for God's kingdom. And there are other dimensions as well. Coming together as a church family by having wide participation in the campaign is so important for families prayerfully approaching this missional opportunity and then discussing it as a family. That's a spiritual catalyst. So we're asking those of you who call Five Oaks your home, if you haven't yet returned your commitment card, please do so in the next couple of days. You'll be receiving an email from us on Sunday afternoon with a digital commitment card that you can fill out online. And just a quick reminder, this is about God's calling on, us, calling on us, a uh, calling on us as a church family and as individuals in our everyday lives. This is about a calling to bless our neighbors 
by pointing them to the love and grace of Christ. God bless you as you prayerfully consider your commitment to the campaign. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into today's sermon. Father, would you please guide us as a church family to follow the ways of Jesus? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the big idea of this series is that Christmas can be the beginning of a great journey this winter, if we'll look beyond the manger to the Christ of Christmas. He's the light and life giver who overcomes the darkness. And to do that, we've been working our way through six attributes of Christ that overcome the darkness. Attributes that we see in John's version of the Christmas story, a version that helps us look beyond the manger. Two weeks ago, uh, we looked at the first attribute. And the first attribute was Christ is the logos, the word. Now, to first century Romans and Jews, logos was a word packed with about as much meaning as you can pack into a word. For the Jews, it represented the wisdom of God that leads us to living a good and beautiful life. In some contexts, Lagos referred to the powerful voice of God that created the universe and continues to act on behalf of his people. And Lagos sometimes referred just to the Bible itself, the word, just like we use the word word to refer to the Bible. For non-Jews in the first century, it represented the principle of reason from which everything emanates. The Stoics in particular wanted to align their lives with reason, with Lagos. So when John speaks of Christ as the Lagos who was born on Christmas Day, he's driving home that the Lagos is more than a principle or a power. The Lagos is personal, and he wants to be part of our everyday lives. He speaks to us through the Bible. And his power is available to us through prayer. So he's inviting, we're being invited to relate to God all day, every day, to dive deep into scripture so that we can know him better and hear from him on a regular basis and to pray boldly. That's how we overcome the darkness, even the darkness of COVID. The second attribute of Christ that overcomes the darkness that we looked at last week is that he is pre-existent. Christ, the Word, the Logos, was making good plans for your infinite future before the world even began. Plans for your good that go all the way into eternity. And those plans for your infinite future can encourage you in your finite now, no matter what your immediate circumstances are. All right, so we're looking at the third attribute today. And the third attribute is that God, Christ is God incarnate. That means Jesus is God and that God in Jesus took on flesh. Incarnation means that God becomes a real flesh and blood human being. So let's review what it says in John chapter 1, verses 1 and then in 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. All right, so God becomes flesh and he dwells among us. That's the manger story, by the way, in the Gospel of John. So one of the things that I've been recommending uh, throughout this series is that everyone for Christmas get a copy of the book Emblems uh, of the Infinite King. And the reason is, is because we're going to do a series, a theology series, uh, through the traditional subjects of systematic theology, beginning with God and 
working our way through all the way to the last things. And this book, you will have an assignment each week to read from this book. It's a way of getting our grounding in what the Bible teaches about God and Christ and salvation and humanity and sin. Because uh, in our churches, in every study that's been done on this, we are not doing very well in understanding the doctrine of God, the teachings about God, and the things that the Bible teaches us. So this is going to be an opportunity to really get our, our grounding. And in that book, uh, there's a section called The Death Killer Takes on Flesh. It's a subsection on Christ, the death killer. And the death killer is Christ. And it says, it says this in that section. We'll be listening to it in a few moments. But it says, God doesn't just make the world, he saves it. It's in God's rescue plan that we see the death killer's son-specific beauty. Now, I want to stop there for a moment before we look at that again, because that sentence is so important. It captures what John says in verse 14, in John chapter 1, verse 14, so, so well. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Listen closely to this for a moment. If, if you're convinced, do I not have that slide? Okay. If you're convinced of the truth of Christianity, but you fail to see the beauty and the wonder of the glory of Christ and the goodness of his love and the goodness of his word and the goodness of the gospel, you are not likely to have a resilient faith in this world, specifically a world where Christianity is increasingly unfashionable and increasingly despised. You have to have something more than just being convinced of the truth. You have to be convinced of its goodness, and you have to be captured by the wonder of who God is and the wonder of the gospel. Parents and grandparents, uncles and aunts, Sunday school teachers, student ministry leaders, we can't simply focus the next generation on truth. We have to focus on truth, but we can't just focus on truth. We also have to focus on the beauty and the wonder and the goodness of God and of Christ and of the gospel, the, the beauty and the goodness of what happened on the cross. We have to ask ourselves, have we seen the glory, the glory of what it means that God took on flesh and dwelt among us? All right, so let's uh, see a little bit about God's incarnation or Christ's incarnation in emblems of an infinite king. The death killer takes on flesh. But God doesn't just make the world, he saves it. It's in God's rescue plan that we see the death killer's son-specific beauty. You see, the son doesn't just help put the rescue mission together. The son actually is the rescue mission. He left the comforts of heaven because the Father sent him to invade his creation to help his people out of the grave and back to God. That is why Christmas is more than wrapping paper and stockings hung by the chimney with care. It is the celebration of the incarnation. It's when the incredible became the unfathomable. The other than God becomes God in the flesh to be God with us. The Divine Son becomes the God-Man. The one who always was, is, and will be, was born to a woman because the Holy Spirit 
mysteriously made it so. The baby sleeping in the manger, the one under the watchful eyes of his virgin mother, Mary, and earthly father, Joseph, created the world he was just born into. The wood for his manger, his. The animals in the field around him, his. The parents who would protect him and provide for him, his. The creator did the unthinkable. He became a part of his creation for sinners like you. This is why you have to think bigger when you think about the death killer. His is a complex beauty. His light glimmers in Bethlehem, shines in Nazareth, appears extinguished on Calvary, but outshines the sun when he steps out of the tomb you stand in now. So last week we looked at the pre-existence of Christ and how he was making plans for you. He wasn't just making plans for you in the past. He was making this plan, this plan to become the rescuer for for our sin, for our turning away from God, for the mess that we've made of our world. I want to leave you with um, three implications. I think they're profound implications of the incarnation. Uh, Because God is, uh, because Jesus is God in the flesh, you can see God in a different way. You can see him in a new and glorious light. So there's a theologian who drove home this very important point. He did a very interesting way. He said the incarnation not only means that Jesus is God, and that's how we usually talk about it, but he said the incarnation also means that God is Christ-like. You want to know God, look at Christ, and you learn that God is Christ-like. The beauty of Christ's incarnation, the glory of the one and only Son, is the glory of God shining through God in Christ-likeness. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, you can see God in a new and glorious light. God is Christ-like. That's the first implication. The second implication is that because Jesus is God in the flesh, you can know that God suffers with you when you suffer. I really like what a a pastor named Ken Landley recalls in a sermon. He uh, recalls you know, growing up in a Sunday school class, he's probably about my age, and the pictures of Jesus, they used to be up on the walls in the Sunday school rooms. And, and those pictures, uh, he came to call, I don't know if anybody else has ever called it this, but I thought it was interesting when I read what he said, um, he called it the Breck girl Jesus. Now, uh, you got to be about my age to know what Breck girl is, but it's a, it was a shampoo, I don't know if it's still a shampoo, it might still be out there. And, uh, and so there was always the Breck girl with beautiful flowing hair, um, just looked wonderful uh, all the time. And of course, because she washed your hair with Breck. And, uh, and so you've got the Breck girl Jesus, this Jesus that has just this beautiful flowing locks and you know, stylized hair. And uh, not, not very realistic, but here's what he says. He says, those pictures didn't encourage me to think of Jesus as one of us. When you look at those pictures, you could not imagine him as a boy wrestling with his friends or a boy worrying about acne or how to impress the girls or as a young man struggling with the temptations that we face. Now, that little statement alone might make you go like this a little bit. 
a boy, teenager struggling with acne, wanting to impress the girls, <laughs> struggling with temptation that we face. If you cringe a little bit inside, it's because you really haven't grasped the idea that God became a man. Next week, we're going to look at how he was 100% God and 100% a man. Not 50-50, not a little bit of humanity, 100% of each. And so he writes this, uh, Langley. He says, saccharine, halo-enhanced images of Jesus give us the impression that he was something alien, something other than us. But he knows our griefs. He knows our temptations. He knows our weariness. He knows our pain. He knows it by experience. So Hebrews chapter 4 makes this point. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, we do not have a high priest referring to Christ. It's talking about how Christ is a better high priest than the high priest that was in the temple. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. We have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, we can know that when we suffer, God knows. As Isaiah said, he is acquainted with grief. He understands grief. One more implication of the incarnation. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, you can know who you actually are. You can know who you were made to be. You can know who you are becoming in Christ and will be once again. Because Jesus shows us what living as God's image bearers looks like. We are made in the image of God. Jesus taking on human flesh shows us what that looks like. What it could have been what it was supposed to be, what it will be again someday. It speaks to who we are. It speaks to what it means to live an authentic life, who we were made to be and who we are becoming. So I want to share with you a, a, a simple idea that I'm sure we'll return to in our next series. If not, we'll definitely return to it in the series after that, which will probably be, be uh, exposition through the book of Romans. Uh, but here's, um, here's, here's the idea. It's shared by theologian Trevin Wax uh, in a new book uh, that he wrote that's called Rethink Yourself, The Power of Looking Up Before Looking In. And it's a, bu- a book about rethinking how we approach our own identity, understanding who we are, and personal authenticity, which is a really uh, high value in our world today, and how we pursue happiness. That's what the book is about. So here's the basic idea. Most people take three things into account, at least two of these into account, when determining who they are, how they see themselves, as well as pursuing authenticity and pursuing their purpose in life, who they were made to be. They look in, which means they look to their desires, they look to their strengths, they look to to, um, what makes them unique. Then they look around, to see how am I compared to others and how do others respond to me and my identity as I see myself. And then, sometimes, they look up. And so they want to add a spiritual dimension to what they've seen within themselves and what they hope is being um, affirmed by the people uh, around them. 
I was listening to a, actually a pastor this morning, an interview. Uh, I was listening to an article because <laughs> I listen to articles. Um, and so uh, he was talking about, he said, a pastor in Los Angeles. And he said, Los Angeles, he says, is the future, not the East Coast. Since the East Coast is completely secularized, in Los Angeles, it is hyper-spiritualized. It's not the spirituality of following Christ. It's a spirituality where you look within yourself and you just try to find something spiritual. So that's the kind of thing that it's talking about here. Now, there's a lot to commend to, to the idea that is pursued in, by most people in our culture, which is to look in first, because the reality is, is that we have been created with a purpose, and we've been made in the image of God, and we've been called to live authentic lives. But Trevin Wax suggests a different route for discovering what our identity is, and it's a route that Jesus exemplified perfectly, and I mean it comes through in Scripture really strong, especially in the Gospel of John. And that's where we start, not by looking in, but by looking up. We start by looking at who we were created by God to be, what he said our true purpose is, so that we can become our truest, most authentic self. Looking in and looking out are still important, but they're transformed when you begin by looking up. Okay, so we need to look closely at the manger, and then we need to look beyond the manger and worship Christ in all of his beauty, his glory, his wonder. The world, the word made flesh. And he not only was made flesh, he dwelt among us. We need to take that into this COVID winter and be sustained by this greater, greater vision.